Faithful Christians are, are all too aware that the choices that we make and the life that we lead and the faith that we have will at some point, and you will have experienced this I guess, they'll be the source of a joke for some people, won't they? That is Christians and Christianity and the worldview, the way that we live our lives, the morality, the framework which we base our lives on will provoke others sometimes, won't they, to, towards you know, kind of making a joke of who you are, what you believe in. Of course, many of your colleagues, you know, uh, you see them, they'll be very civil and polite most of the time. And, but after a few beers, you know, a few glasses of wine after work, you know the scenario, in that group scenario, when they get a little bit of confidence up. Uh, if you dare to mention the salvation that you know in Jesus Christ, well, at some point, the joke will be pointed towards you. They so desperately misunderstand uh, so much of what the Bible says and what you believe in that the finger will be pointed towards you if you're a Christian here today at some point. And this is no less true for the people and the circumstances of the passage that we've just heard read. They are in part a big joke. And uh, the humour is cutting, excuse the pun, uh, but many throughout history have looked at they've looked at the violence and the bloodshed in these passages, and it's quite unapologetic, isn't it? And some people, sadly, have turned to dismiss them as kind of vulgar humour. Not many Sunday school lessons kind of teach Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar, do they? But too many Christians and too many churches have been embarrassed to even go towards. Uh, these passages and what they try to do if they dare go there they sometimes distort them and they do so I I was reading one example of this Uh, they claim that Ehud's double-edged sword of verse 16 is actually a picture of the sword of the spirit in Ephesians 6 which the sword of the spirit is the bible the word of God itself cutting to the fat the sin of Eglon's heart I can say that's absolute rubbish I mean, Eglon himself probably wanted the sword to be a little picture, an allegory, you know, but there's nothing to suggest that in the text, is there? It's just an embarrassed Christian view trying to cover up the gory details of a very, very fat king who had oppressed God's people and who was being executed in God's justice. See, however uncomfortable we may find this today, The people and the circumstances of the book of Judges are often a joke. The writer cleverly interweaves all these kind of irony and double entendre and and satire and just plain, simple, slapstick humour right in the centre of these passages. I wonder if you heard it. I know some of you did. You kind of restrained, didn't you, at those times? And, And even, bless Melissa, was trying to hold back a little snigger at one point. It was all there, but... As you go through the story, try really hard to take yourself out of being that kind of first world contemporary Christian that you are today. With all the security that you have around you, with all the pleasantness of your life right now, take yourself out of that and try and imagine yourself as an Israelite 3,200 years ago. For example, look at verse 14. We see that God's people, Israel, there have been, like it says, 18 years under the oppression, taxed to the breaking point under the super morbidly obese King Eglon. 
So imagine, you know, I put a picture of contrast up, up on the screen. Tim's about three pictures behind, but that's fine. Um, a picture of contrast um, of the, the, the food of a Michelin-starred restaurant that's coming up in a moment. We missed, oh, I know what we missed. Keep going. We'll come to that later. But keep going. That was, the, that was your friends laughing at you. Keep going. Yes, keep going. We're nearly there. There was Eglon. Look at him. I found a Lego Eglon man. Here we go. Keep going. We'll come to that in a minute. But imagine, you're living in poverty... There you are, weeping because you've got no food. And that was the situation for the Israelites at the time. And you've got Eglon gorging in his palace, eating the Michelin-starred food that he could afford. Imagine yourself as the Israelites, while you're freezing on the hill, hill country of Ephraim in the winter months. Well, Eglon is down in his palace being kept warm with his harem, which historically we know is true. Now, I know it's still really difficult, but but understand not from your perspective. Understand from the Israelites as they heard these stories. Yes, they would have laughed. Yes, they would have smiled. This is not kind of modern Germany. It was still kind of vexed about whether they can tell jokes about Hitler because we're not sure. You know, there's certain oppressor that's come from within. You know, it's not that situation. This is a raider that's come from the outside, an oppressor of God's people. And the way that this story is told uh, shows that the Israelites were not embarrassed about neither the method nor the outcome of what the judges achieved. Rather, they seem to, there's a smile on their faces as they record how God brought them salvation through these people. Yes, very unusual circumstances, brutal circumstances at times but also rather amusing circumstances as well. And why should God's way be the boring way? Uh, too often, I guess, our friends you know, assume there's misconceptions that the Christian life is the dull life. The way of you know, those people just don't have anything else better to do. But you and I know that God so often works through the unusual and the unexpected. Because in doing so, our dull vision of who we believe he may be, is lifted, as we see is nothing but dull. The circumstances, yes, they're amusing, but what happens to the people uh, opposed is also amusing at times. But so are God's tools for saving his people, the judges. Let's look at three of them. I'm just going to do a little brief overview, if I can, of each of the judges. Othniel, Ehud, and then Shamgar. Now, we're mainly going to focus on Ehud, because I think it's a little bit more amusing, uh, and probably needs a little bit more explanation as well. And I want to show you, essentially, very briefly, why all of these three men at the beginning, in a sense, are a little bit of a joke. And all the commentators kind of point you that way. I mean, it's difficult for us to go there, but let me show you why. Let's go to Othniel first, the uninteresting, hence just the grey blandness of the, of the square there. God, God's people, let's look at it, go dive into the text, chapter 3, verse 7. God's people forgot their Lord. It begins with there. They sin, and so what happens? God gives his people over to serve Cushan Rishathain. God refuses to let his people go, but he also refuses for his people to just stay comfortable in their sin, worshipping as they were Baal. So he gives them over to someone less offensive, if you like. And later the people cry out, so the Lord delivers them through Othniel. Now, Othniel, you kind of think, why is he a joke? He seems the great, but 
is actually a joke because it's hardly ever mentioned. Which is why he's so uninteresting. Because the primary subject of all of those verses, verse 7 through to the end of that section, the primary subject's God. Othniel is just not essential in any way to the delivery of God's people. Yes, he's filled with the Spirit. The Spirit comes upon him. But he's nothing himself. God is everything in that first section. And therefore, we can, many people describe it as the uninteresting one. You just, you just don't know anything about it. Then you get to Ehud. Why is he a bit of a joke? Well, he's unsuitable. And here's where we perhaps don't get the humour, which is actually in the original text. Okay, Let me show you why Ehud is unsuitable. Firstly, he's a Benjaminite. Now, you probably think, yeah, and? Well, the Benjaminites were known as God's right-hand men. But Ehud's a lefty, like Zach, my son. So it's God's right-hand man who's a lefty. God is using a man who's of a tribe in the right-hand men of God who's a left-handed man. And you're meant to see that within the text. God is, and moreover, King Eglon conquered and yes, it was, he's a very fat man. Again, it's comical in the way that it's being portrayed. So Eglon is a very unsuitable conqueror, but Ehud, likewise, is an unsuitable lefty who's a right-hand man of God. Let's go to Shamgar, the unknown. Yes, and one famous preacher did actually describe him as Jack Barron, tried to justify that, but let me show you why. Essentially, you know, you see in verse 31, he can run in, he can slay 600 men with an ox goad, which is essentially like a crook with a little flail at the end. How you do that, we don't know, the text doesn't tell us, but it's a bit like Jack Bauer, you know, you see and everyone, yeah, you know how it goes. But he's unknown. He's one of God's deliverers, but we know nothing about him. You can imagine the Israelites, can't you, around the campfire telling, telling these stories later. Families would be in stitches. The, the, the thought that God could use the uninteresting, the unsuitable, the unknown, that men are a joke. But God's salvation can often be like this. God's salvation plans throughout history have, of course, seemed utterly foolish. Whether, pe- whether the people or the plan, humanly speaking, it can all seem way too far-fetched, can't it? But it is interesting, isn't it? Every Sunday, Christians celebrate someone who entered this world fragile and weak, who allowed himself as the creator God to be crucified by his creatures. God dies on a cross, and it seems like a joke to the world. But that is God's way. It's his kind provision to us for salvation. See, Christians, therefore, if you're a Christian here today, you are called to stand beside someone who is mocked by many, is the butt of many jokes. And so, therefore, you too, if you're a Christian here today, ought to expect the same. However, God has and will continue to say through this apparent joke to the world, this very, what people would consider a weakness. He uses the uninteresting, the the unsuitable, and the unknown in his saving plans. And I hope and I pray that's an encouragement to all of us. Because that means he can use people like you and me. 
Every week from the age of 11 to 14, I, I was in a Pathfinder group in my local church. Many of you remember that, that kind of time. And I remember we had this Pathfinder leader, and he was, of all of those things that we mentioned, very uninteresting, pretty unknown. And, and, and there he was. He came in with his massive briefcase, big leather briefcase, got out even bigger Bible. You know, it's like opened it up to the passage, read about three verses and said, let me explain it to you. And we sort of sat there going, is this really what youth work's about? You know, we're thinking, this is everything that is wrong with youth work, surely. Yet this man faithfully taught us for four years. And he's still doing the same job today. And, you know, you might look at him and the world will look at him and say, what an uninteresting man. How totally unsuitable. And none of you will ever know his name. And yet of that small group, I think most of us are still following Christ and it was a fairly large group and many of us are serving Christ in full-time gospel ministry. God uses the uninteresting. God uses the unsuitable and the unknown in his saving plans. He uses people like you, wherever you work, whatever you do. And he uses people like me. We may be a joke to the world. But God uses and enables all sorts in his saving work. And in Judges, the writer describes the uninteresting, the unsuitable, and the unknown judges who saves God's people. But they appear, as I mentioned last week, I don't know if you remember, in this cycle. Each time there's a, a, a cycle, a way that it goes through the judges. And it's going to come up on, our, on, on the screen there. And I've put it down on your sheets. It's a pattern that follows through each one. There's a sin. The God's people turn away from God. They rebel. They say, I'm not going to follow you anymore. Then there's a raider comes in as part of God, allows judgments to come on them. There's a cry. They go, no, no more God. The judge comes in or the deliverer. And he brings peace. The sin, the raider, the cry, the judge, the peace. This repetition goes throughout the whole book. And it can make us, as the readers, I guess, think, I don't know if you read through this, the whole book, and you kind of think, Surely, God, you wouldn't do that again, would you? It just feels a little bit too forgiving. Look at verse 9, if you want, for an example. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Canaz, Caleb's Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. Surely, don't you just feel, oh, come on, not again, God. Just nuke them. You know, just take them all out. They're a pain, aren't they, to you? Or perhaps you're a little bit more caring. You're, you're just thinking, oh, that, isn't that lovely? Isn't that, really, isn't that kind that God's done that? Let's never forget this is an absolute miracle. The sinful who have received justice in a raider have been delivered to salvation. Now, this is God's grace that we're seeing here. This is undeserved kindness from God again and again and again. And it's the same grace that we, if we're Christians here today, have received through Jesus Christ. So as we look more detail now, we look at the story of Ehud, following that pattern through, to show you one example of the three here. As we look through this story, let's specifically see this God's grace in action here, bringing the God's people from sin to salvation. So firstly, let's turn to the sin. And you'll see that. Follow with me. Uh, Let's go to uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Just the beginning part there. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as you begin here, you probably, you can feel in the readers a big sigh, can't you? Oh, not again. 
It's, I guess, like the refrain of many of our lives. The Israelites are compulsive sinners. They continue to fail God. Their their small initial compromises, which we looked at last week, have gone in a bit of a downward spiral. There's a decline in their sin, if you like. And the lesson, I guess, from last week was that uh, the people that fail to give wholehearted obedience to the Lord, those who compromise can only sink lower and lower and lower. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Just notice there that, do you see how sin is never judged according to our eyes, but rather the eyes of the Lord? You see, however you rationalize or justify your own sin, it can never be done that way. It's what God thinks that matters. Do you ever read the papers and, and watch the news and you kind of think, oh, well, I'm not as bad as them? You look down on people, don't you? You kind of think, hey, look at those murderers, look at those ex, look at all those other people. And then what you begin to do in your mind, in your heart, at that point, you begin to create a distance between you and them. You say, hey, I'm looking down on them and I'm so much better than them that you begin to justify what you do in rebellion to God. Such you say, oh, I must be all right. I must be, in some ways, be able to merit myself before God. Must be acceptable to God in some degree. Hey, I'm not like them. Well, that is not true, because verse 12 is the story of today, in my life, and I guess in all of our lives. Whatever we've done in our hearts and minds, in our lives, in the quietness of our own bedrooms, wherever it may be, Once again, I guess all of us could put our names there, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. I think we need to be careful that we don't sigh in condescension and pity when we read stories like this in the Bible. Rather, we need to cry out to God and ask for his grace and his forgiveness and his deliverance from our sin. I guess the question that the beginning of this story points to is, can God ignore it? Can God just sort of uh, say, hey, I'm so loving, I'll just let you carry on in your sin, in your rebellion? Of course not. And as we get to the second part of verse 12, have a look at it there. And, And because they did this, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. What does God do? Second point, he sends in the raider. There's judgment coming here. The Lord gave Eglon power over Israel. Because of their sin, they experienced God's anger, which is not irrational, like a father's anger when he's asked his son to clear up his bedroom for the 20th time over the weekend, not looking at anyone, but you know. Sin deserves justice. Sin deserves punishment. For example, if you fail to meet the standards that the government have set uh, regarding the law in this land to live peaceably in this country. If you smash all of the windows of the houses in your street, you expect a punishment, don't you? That would be justice. We vote people in to uphold that justice. We're in uproar, aren't we? If people don't uphold that justice. So why are you still surprised when we see that it was the Lord that gave Eglon power over Israel? It's justice. 
They actually deserve worse. So in one sense, this is actually the beginning of salvation for God's people. They deserve an eternal death. But in God's righteous anger and justice, we still see there's this glimmer of mercy and kindness within this story. Yes, he does give them over to a situation of suffering. Why? So that they may one day turn back to him. Cry out to him. Say sorry. Trust in his goodness and his good plan for them. As they once did. I guess there's a warning here. And I say this soberly because I must speak to myself in this as well. But if you are persistently failing God in a particular sin. And are not willing to fight it. God will not allow you to remain in that sin for long. Whether it's a blatant rebellion or it's just self-pity or trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ and his rule, his lordship in your life that will give you ultimate purpose and ultimate joy and salvation for eternity in his kingdom. Oh, you know where you can put your trust, whether it's in your family, in your relationships, in your work, in your money. They can so easily be idols to us, can't they? The question is, are you persisting in that sin? If you are, then be warned. Look at this, it's so plain here. The Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. The Lord sent justice. A raider came in. So thirdly, we've seen the sin, we've seen the raider, the justice, and now we get the cry. At the beginning of verse 15, have a look at that. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Now, we kind of want it to be cries of repentance, but it's not. Uh, we long for them to say, say, sorry, God, we failed you again and again. We're turning back to you. Forgive us. But these cries are, are simply, God, why are you doing to this? Yeah, why are you doing this to us? This is way too much. The interesting thing is that when, when we become so entrenched in our sin, we fail to even see the need for us to say sorry to God, don't we? Our sin becomes quite normal to us, doesn't it? And that is why I think it's so important that we have good friends that can point things out to us graciously, lovingly, privately. If you lack a friend that's willing to say those hard things, then can I encourage you to invest in that kind of friendship? To say those difficult things, you won't like hearing them, but it will be for your good. One preacher I was listening to said this, he just said, hard words make soft Christians. That is, people who are humble before God. And soft words make hard Christians. Stubborn towards God. Let me encourage you to find someone who is willing to say the hard things to you. The Israelites, in the story here, they're suffering because of their sin, their failure to follow God. But God in his mercy, verse 15, what does he do? He gives them, oh, give, he gives them a deliverer. Were they deserving of this? Have they merited anything that could, you know, verse 15, they, they get a deliverer, they get a judge? No. Are we deserving of a deliverer? No. But here we get point four, the deliverer. His name's Ehud. This is where the fun begins. Um, look, the Lord gave the Israelites the unsuitable 
Ehud. Let's follow through verse 15, halfway through. A left-handed man, a son of Gera, uh, the Benjaminite, that's the right-handed men of God. Um, again, know the inadequacy of Israel. They couldn't raise up the saviour, the deliverer, the judge from within themselves. The Lord provided, he gave them Ehud. Likewise, there's nothing that we can do to save us, ourselves. We need a deliverer. We need a saviour. And we cannot find that saviour. We can't find a saviour from within. Rather, God provides. So we get to the gory story. Verse 16 through to 25. Ehud killed the very, very, very fat king, Eglon. Let's look at the details for a moment. Ehud is the head of a group that brings tribute to the king Eglon. That's probably some food from the land, maybe even a few cattle and so on, just to give him, so he can gorge himself. Uh, but verse 16, have a look at that. Now Ehud made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Now at this point, again, this is where the Israelites, they've already started giggling, but it even gets better at this point. Because notice how ignorant the guards are of King Eglon. To not notice a sword strapped to a thigh. Now, apparently, as, as most people today, my son Zachary's left-handed. He loves the fact that he's... Is it 5% of the population? Doctors, help me. About that, great. Um, you know, and there they are. It's a tiny proportion. So what they did, Eglon's uh, guards, they didn't look on the thigh um, you know, of which a sword would normally be strapped to. Because if you were right-handed, you always strapped it to your left thigh. But he's got this massive sword... On his, left, on his right thigh, and they fail to look there. It's, kind of, it's not great, is it, as far as security is concerned? Imagine, like a, a, you know, let's say, Heathrow. The security guard says, well, there's an Al-Qaeda operative. He's walking in. He's got a bomb on his right shoulder, but we only look on the left shoulder for bombs. You know, it'd just be, it'd be crazy kind of oversight, wouldn't it? It's incompetent. They're sort of saying, never mind the bulge on your right thigh. People don't strap their swords there. That's essentially what Eglon's bodyguards are doing here verse 17 but he, what does he do he presented the tribute to Eglon king of Moab who was a very fat man and the point of the language there is to so that you picture it they want you to go okay he's enormous verse 18 after Ehud had presented the tribute he sent on their way men who had carried it now, at the idols near Gigal um, he himself turned back and said I have a secret message for you O king now, so puffed up is the king about himself, what does he do? I'm deserving of secret messages, and therefore I'm going to hear this wonderful secret message for myself, the great king, Eglon. And look what happens. The king said, quiet, and all his attendants left him. And at, the moment, at that moment, you kind of think, the Israelites are chuckling to themselves. The king dismisses his guards. What a fool. Here we go, verse 20. He had approached him and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, and again, rising from his seat, the picture is, oh, that's a bit of a struggle. He's a big man getting out of his seat. What happens? We get the story in slow motion, verse 21. Ehud reached with his left hand, the right-handed Benjamite, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out of his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. Is the humour unsavoury and distasteful? Do you find this jars against your pristine view of what the Bible 
ought to say. I, you know, I guess we sanitise things so much that we struggle with the gory details um, and quite humorous details that we see here. I guess one thing this story tells us that we all need to hear uh, is that Israel's God, our God, the God of the Bible, does not stand off, is not removed from situations of mess and the ugliness of life in this world. Now, we might not get to the scenario where, uh, of killing a, you know, a very fat king, but when you have uh, sinned once more, when you have done whatever you have done, whatever you are persisting in your sin, the point is God is not distant and removed from that. He's right there in the mess of your life, and he's waiting for you to turn to him, to deliver you from that, if you like. Of course, now in Christ. As one scholar put it, he says, God is the God who allows weeping to endure for the night, but sees that joy comes in the morning. Yeah, life might be messy, but when the sun rises, the morning of eternity brings joy. So God delivers his people. It may be messy, but in love, he does it. It's hard to hear, isn't it? Lastly, the Lord gave Moab into their hands. But those last few verses of that section. So the story goes, he who had escaped, the Israelites held the crossing places on the Jordan and cut off the escape routes for the people of Moab. God's enemies are defeated. And once again, the Lord's, it's all the Lord's doing. He gives Moab, the enemies of God, into their hands. And that's the story. You get the sin, you get the raider, you get the cry, you get the delivering judge. And finally, what is this all leading towards? And essentially, it was what we need to see that where we're pointing to as well. It's peace. And we see that in verse 30 onwards. Look at verse 30 with me if you can. That day Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. But I do want you to flick on just to chapter 4 verse 1 if you can for a second. Look at that. After Ehud had died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There's 80 years of peace which this whole cycle has brought through this amazingly gory and messy story of Ehud and Eglon. And yet we see the moment Ehud dies, the same old, the same old. Ehud is not an adequate saviour. God brings a kind of salvation to, to God's people through him, but Ehud cannot change what is most important. He cannot change the hearts of the people. They are, as we are, slaves to sin. We need a deliverer from that. Sins are not just a, our thoughts and actions, our rebellion. It's God's sin is a, a, a power that drives us from God and, and chains, it to, chains us to itself. Oh, we might not want to sin, but we all know that struggle, don't we, in our lives? Even if we try to have a particular sin in our, in our hearts and minds that we say, I'm not going to do that tomorrow. We may achieve one day. Try a week, a month. Like the Israelites, we have no peace knowing we face the justice our sins deserve. And we have no left-handed, knife-wielding saviour can break us free from the tyranny of our sin. But there is one saviour. And his name is Jesus. 
And the way he breaks us free is, yes, it may seem weak. It may seem like a joke that the Saviour died and hung on a cross. But in so doing, he takes all that punishment that we deserve on himself and delivers us. The tragedy of our story would be if we do not cry out and accept the salvation that is on offer through our deliverer, through our saviour, the one that brings us eternal peace. Jesus Christ, our saviour, died on the cross and and this eternal saviour will save his people from her sins. The question is, have you trusted in him? Have you trusted in God's kind provision of a saviour deliverer? And if you have, then the picture of peace that we see here from verse 30, it's only a picture, can be yours, but eternally. Not just for 80 years, but forever and ever and ever. Let's pray that we trust in Jesus Christ.